Tonight at sundown until sundown tomorrow marks International Holocaust Remembrance Day, known as Yom HaShoah or Day of Destruction. The well-known slogans remind us to never forget and to never let it happen again. Recently, I began studying philosophy professor Hannah Arendt's 1963 book, Eichmann in Jerusalem, a report on the banality of evil, and the controversy that has surrounded it since its publication. I remembered the phrase, the banality of evil, one day when I was listening to NPR and heard the account of yet another school shooting. For a split second, I was filled with grief and sympathy, but then was aware of the fact that my mind naturally drifted quite quickly to thinking about the song that was in my head. The fact that a second after hearing of such tragedy, I was cheerfully humming along to whatever annoying pop song was plaguing me was more jarring to me than the shooting itself, and this upset me. After a brief moment of self-judgment, I began to mourn the fact that these things, things like safety in schools, can no longer be taken for granted, and that mass murderers choosing school children as their targets has been so, become so commonplace that a relatively sensitive and genuinely caring person, such as I like to think of myself, is able to go on relatively unaffected by such news. I checked, and in the year and some odd months since the tragedy in Newtown, Connecticut, there have been 44 school shootings in the U.S., 13 of them within the first six weeks of 2014 alone. So I looked up the phrase and rediscovered Hannah Arendt's book, I even watched the lackluster 2012 movie, Hannah Arendt, about her life during, before, during, and after the book's publication. I'm not sure that I buy her argument that Nazi Adolf Eichmann, the man who was in charge of arranging the transportation of several million Jews to their death in packed train cars, was simply a puny, boring bureaucrat, unable to think for himself that he was just following orders. She was surprised to find that, as she puts it, everybody could see that this man was not a monster, but it was difficult indeed not to suspect that he was not a clown. Not to, excuse me, rather, not to suspect that he was a clown. That his, quote, lack of imagination and fear, sheer thoughtlessness allowed him to never realize what he was doing. No, I'm not sure that I buy any of that. It seems a weak defense. But of course, I wasn't there. Still, what's difficult to wrap one's brain around is that anyone could ever so abandon their conscience or divorce themselves from empathy so entirely as to compartmentalize in that way. Eichmann's greatest aspiration, it seems, was to rise to the ranks of the Nazi party and to be somebody, having been a disappointment to his father, 
his community and been looked down upon by the middle class of his upbringing. He wanted to please the big man in charge at all costs, even swearing that he had himself never held any anti-Semitic beliefs. In truth, there could never be an adequate motive offered by a mass murderer. We hope in many contemporary cases, such as mass public shootings, for a mental illness diagnosis to surface. In our efforts to understand horrendous acts of evil, we prefer to remove as much personal agency and responsibility from the perpetrator as possible. We would rather believe that a glitch in the wiring of the brain would provoke such atrocities rather than believe that someone could willingly and without remorse choose to hurt another. If there is an explanation of mental illness, we think, then we may have hope of preventing future tragedies, of curing the sickness. In an article in The Guardian entitled, From Adam Lanza, The Medical Occasion of Evil, Lindsay Fitzharris, a British medical student, warns us that to over-pathologize examples of evil will remove personal accountability entirely from the equation. She says, while I do believe it's important to determine what factors may have led Lanza to open fire on Sandy Hook Elementary School and whether this tragic event could have been prevented, I want to remind the U.S. and the world one thing. Evil is about choice. Sickness is the absence of choice. Not only should we be careful about pathologizing mass murderers so as to avoid further stigmatization of mental illness, but in doing so, we not only let the perpetrator off the hook, we also avoid confronting the possibility of seeing ourselves in those who are able to choose evil over good. Sure, some who commit evil acts truly may be beyond rehabilitation, unable to feel a shred of empathy for another. Psychosis is real. But although we may view ourselves as genuinely compassionate, good-natured people, I would reckon that empathy most often lies somewhere on a spectrum between saintly and intrinsically evil. We can't all be Mother Teresa just as we think goodness aren't all Hitler. I'm sure we'd rather uh, like to think of ourselves as closer to the Mother Teresa end of the spectrum most of the time, as I believe we tend to be. But the fact still remains that empath empathic concern is a fluid characteristic. Our first principle as Unitarian Universalists states that we affirm and promote the inherent worth and dignity of every person. Now, the drafters of that principle, delegates gathered from UU congregations throughout our movement, were careful not to state a belief in the inherent goodness of every person. Rather, we are concerned with the possibility of goodness in people and strive to treat them accordingly, according to that possibility. Last year, Professor Steve Taylor wrote in Psychology Today that 
empathy or lack of empathy aren't fixed. Although people with a psychopathic personality appear to be unable to develop empathy, for most of us, empathy or goodness is a quality that can be cultivated. This is recognized by Buddhism and most other spiritual traditions. As we become more open and more connected, we become more selfless and altruistic. This is evident in Tibetan Buddhism's idea of recognizing that every human, everyone we meet, was, at some point in time, your mother, and treating them as such. We are aware of the golden rule, and the platinum rule goes one step further. Do unto others as they would have you do unto them. It is within human nature to to desire to think of ourselves as the good guys. And as liberal progressive folk, we like to think of ourselves as standing on the right side of history. Hopefully, with dedication, our legacies may prove this to be the case. But because we believe ourselves to be good, does this prevent us from perpetuating or being complicit in evil? If we can so easily dismiss horrors of the nightly news as ordinary, commonplace occurrences, how far removed are we from the ability to set aside conscience altogether? What makes otherwise normal people commit acts of evil? This was a major question in the recent television series Breaking Bad. The lead character could have been a modern-day Eichmann, a boring, dweeby high school chemistry teacher who, upon being diagnosed with terminal lung cancer, begins to manufacture crystal meth. For several seasons, the audience bears witness to Walter White's moral degradation as he little by little goes from dull family man to ruthless, violent, amoral drug lord by looking past just one scruple after another after another. It's amazing how people can transform. We don't often think about the fact that Hitler was once a giggling baby that someone cherished. I saw a photograph just a couple days ago of a young teenage Osama bin Laden this week. He and over a dozen of his siblings and cousins were posing in front of a pink Cadillac while on vacation in Europe in the 70s. They were all dressed in the styles of the day, both women and men. No hint of radical Islam. And he stood there, laughing and young, big hair and sideburns, dressed like J.J. from Good Times. I couldn't look away. These days, most accept that evil is not a metaphysical force. The devil made me do it doesn't hold much weight anymore. But I wonder if we have not adopted a seeping, dangerous cultural denial of evil's existence as a systemic reality. We take cultural ills and reduce them to interpersonal incidents before we then reduce them still to background noise on the nightly news. It's someone else's loss. It's someone else's kid. It's someone else's town. 
Instead of stepping back to recognize the living system at play, we zoom in so closely that we no longer have to focus at all. Epidemic gun violence becomes to us unrelated cases of mental illness or neglectful parents or the product of violent video games. Racism becomes individual prejudice, mere name-calling, radical men in white sheets, rather than the very foundation that our society was built upon and that was never fully reconciled and that still affords great privilege to those born with white skin. Genocide becomes an egregious terror that lesser civilizations, lesser civilized nations carry out rather than our own nation's shameful history. Misogyny becomes catcalls and ditzy blonde stereotypes rather than the worldwide actuality of the continued mistreatment of women and girls. And anti-Semitism becomes the painful memories of faraway Europe rather than the continued presence of neo-Nazi hate groups right here within our own communities, and so on. Ignoring our own nation's atrocities, choosing the privilege that we have, some of us, of being able to not have to talk about these things, about, the, about evil in terms of systems in which we live our lives, creates of us a chilling similarity to the many nameless, ordinary accomplices to historical events such as the Holocaust. Before the World Wars, Germany was widely respected worldwide, throughout the world, as a center of culture, of science, intellect, and art. Flunkies following orders, bystander, and other banal people helped the evil cause in their action and in their inaction. It would be maddening, though, to fully, fully empathize which, with each and every story of evil day in, day out. The anger and the grief would eventually deaden our ability to experience joy. We can, however, choose not to outright ignore. Together, we can choose not to accept hopelessness, not to choose personal insignificance, but to be part of the collective response. We can choose to work toward repairing the evil present in our world with good. And we can begin with ourselves. Systems aren't always easy to notice, especially because we're all busy playing our parts within them. So how not to feel like the problem, any evil is too big to care about? How do we battle the urge toward indifference? Where do we find the middle ground between a depressing, bleak outlook and total moral blindness and lack of concern. Longtime Buddhist scholar and activist Joanna Macy tells us that we find it in community. The happy medium is right here. She says that this work needs to be done in groups so that we can hear it from each other. 
Then you realize that it gives a lie to the isolation that we have been so conditioned to experience in recent centuries. And because the truth is speaking in the work, she says it unlocks the heart. There comes a time when the little band of heroes, she says, feels totally outnumbered and bleak like Frodo in Lord of the Rings or Pilgrim in Pilgrim's Progress. And you learn to say, it's bleak. It looks bleak. Big deal. It looks bleak. Archbishop Desmond Tutu speaks to this in his book, No Future Without Forgiveness. After apartheid, South Africa sought to find a middle ground of moving forward. Somewhere between the Nuremberg trials after World War II and the national amnesia that continues to take place in the United States' attitude toward our own history of genocide and slavery. Post-apartheid South Africa was way too complex for either option. Both sides were still living side by side. Both had committed atrocities, and all the wounds were still fresh. The middle way, the extremely difficult path toward forgiveness, was chosen, and the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was established. Tutu said, it was pointed out that we, none of us, possess a kind of fiat by which we can say, let bygones be bygones, and presto, hey, they become bygones. Our common experience is in fact the opposite, that the past, far from disappearing or lying down and being quiet, has an embarrassing and persistent way of returning and haunting us until it has in fact been dealt with adequately. On my fridge... There's a magnetic quote by Gloria Steinem. The truth shall set you free, but first it will piss you off. And I will also add that first it will make you cry. First it will fill you with grief. But yes, we shall be free. Never forget. And never let it happen again. May it be so. This is a presentation of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, visit our website at www.austinuu.org.